Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, I trust you were encouraged by that time of worship this morning. We're purposeful in our worship. It's designed to prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. And we're excited this morning to continue our summer series called Life in the Tension, where we've been looking at how do we as the church engage our culture with the truth of God's word while maintaining grace and truth. It's not always easy to do as a believer living in today's world. And yet we believe God's word informs us because Christ was full of grace and truth. And so this summer we've been inviting out some guest speakers who we think epitomize this tone in the ministries that they lead and in the way that they communicate God's word. Uh, This morning's uh, guest speaker is uh, a friend of Salem Heights Church and has become a friend of mine. Uh, Several years ago, I was given a book written by him, uh, written to pastors uh, on how to build relationships in their life that will give them uh, sustainability and encouragement as they fulfill God's call for their life. And I read that book and was very encouraged by that book. And I I thought to myself, man, it'd be great to just know this person and invite this person to our church. I wonder if they would ever come. And so I found a way to communicate with uh, Jimmy Dodd. And uh, this is his third time at Salem Heights Church. And I'm reminded of a a passage this morning out of Colossians where Paul is just talking about some of the people in his life that had made an impact. And it says here that a man named Tychicus was a loved brother a faithful servant, and a fellow slave in the Lord. And he was sent so that not only would he give an update about Paul, but it said this, so that you may also be encouraged. And every time Jimmy has come out, we have been encouraged as a church family. And so I'm excited to introduce again to Salem Heights. Let's give him a warm Salem Heights welcome, Jimmy Dodd. Thanks for being here again. I'm honored to be here. I love this church. (laughs) Well, let me pray for you, then I'm going to set you loose. Okay. I know you're ready to go. Father God, we thank you so much for not only uh, Jimmy being here and having a word from you to give to us today as part of this series, but we thank you for his friendship, uh, the union that you've given us as brothers in the Lord, um, that we will uh, be together forever in eternity as part of your family. And now we get this opportunity to start that relationship on this side of heaven. And we're thankful for that, God. I pray that you give Jimmy clarity, that you prepare our hearts to hear, and that your Holy Spirit would help us have understanding how we apply this message to our very own lives. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pete. Hey, it's great to be here with you this morning. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. I flew in with, with, with my wife this week, and we flew on Southwest Airlines, as I know that lots of you have done, and you always hear the safety talk when you're on a flight and you hear the safety talk where they go through everything. And uh, I always kind of laugh when they talk about, you know, the, uh, you know, the seat cushion can be a, you know, flotation device and there's a, you know, raft on board. Uh, and I always just kind of laugh because, because if a plane goes down in the ocean or in water, you know what? It's, it's your time. <laughs> it's your time. And really, as far as you can research, Nobody in the history of aviation has ever used that as a flotation device. Uh, and so I, I'm always curious about that. So there's times which might ask, you know, hey, is, is that really true? It's like, well, you know what? We, we really know that this isn't true, but it makes people feel better anyway. 
That's an interesting statement. We know this isn't true, but we, it kind of makes people feel better anyway. And it's an interesting statement because I think, unfortunately, a lot of people take that type of mindset and they apply it to the Word of God. Yeah, we don't know if all this is true. It makes us feel better. Man, we love coming to church. We love opening up our Bible. Uh, we, we hope it's true, uh, but we, we, really, we really don't know, but it makes us feel better. There's no question that the Word of God is under assault in our culture unquestionably. I mean, you can look at the news, you can look at the headlines every day, and you can see that there are so many aspects of the Word of God that are daily under attack. And uh, it, it breaks my heart. The phrase I go back to that uh, I heard many years ago was from Homer Simpson when he said, this book, the Bible, it doesn't have any answers. Some people think it's only legend. Some people think, well, it's just it's just this legend that took place a long time ago, and you really can't know if these stories are absolutely true about Jesus. It's interesting because Matthew wrote, and he talks so much about royalty. And Mark writes his gospel. He talks so much about the power of the Lord. Luke writes his gospel. He talks so much about love, but he talks so much about truth. Luke is absolutely obsessed with the truth. He writes in a way that the average person is curious. The average person is going to wonder about these things. So I love the fact that you're in the midst of this series, Life and the Tension, and the fact you're talking about apologetics. And so today, we're going to walk through in a very basic, simple way, in a way that I hope encourages you and challenges you. How do we know the Word of God is true? How do we know that this book is absolutely true? Not just we hope it's true, not just we, we would think, but we can absolutely have certainty that it's true. So I want to start off in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, please open to Luke chapter 1. And I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." Amen. You may be seated. I want you to mark these words in your Bible if you have a pen, because I think that they're so absolutely critical. Luke says that, the, that he's going to talk to eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses, and he says he has investigated everything from the beginning so that you may know. I mean, Luke is going to write this orderly account, and he's going to make it very, very clear. I love the fact that at the start of this whole time together, as you started this really strong series, there was a message by Justin, and he spoke about Tim Keller. And uh, Tim's been a friend of mine for about 33 years. He was called home to be with, with, with the Lord about a month and a half ago. Um, Tim helped me a great deal to think through the Word of God. So let me just be very, very upfront. So much of what you hear this morning, Tim helped me to actually structure this. Uh, Tim was absolutely the real deal. People always say, is he everything that we had hoped he would be? He was absolutely a humble 
man of prayer, and I'm grateful that he's with the Lord, uh, but massively, massively missed. So we're, I want to walk through three points here this morning. We're going to talk about the true story of Jesus. That's the outline. Here it is. We're going to talk about the true story of Jesus. We're going to talk about the true story of Jesus. And then we're going to talk about the story, the true story of Jesus. All right? So you just have to understand the emphasis on the different words. All right. So first of all, the true story of Jesus. Luke makes very clear that Jesus is over-the-top inclusive. I love this. Jesus is going to go out of his way to minister and to care for and to welcome and to grant dignity to outsiders and outcasts and poor and prostitutes and women and children and lepers and the elderly and the sick and the Gentiles. We, we love this inclusiveness, but let me make sure that you understand. First of all, Jesus was crazy radical. And second, the fact that he is so unbelievably just so inclusive doesn't mean that he condones all of these things that people bring. I don't like the fact that so often we hear in the church, well, we really can't be a welcoming church because if we become a welcoming church of everybody, it's gonna seem like we condone their behaviors if they, if they live a sinful lifestyle. No, we can be a very welcoming, open church and it means that we can still preach the word of God because I believe that deep down, people are desperate for truth. People are desperate to hear what is absolutely, they can know with certainty is the word of God. And Jesus makes incredible claims about himself. He says he's the giver of life. He's the light of the world. He's the only way. He's the judge of the world. He's the one that comes to unite us. My wife and I had the joy to write a book about the names of Jesus. It's a children's book. And just the process of working on that book gave me so much insight into the person of Jesus and who he is. There might be some of you here today that you're skeptics and you've come hoping for the perfect argument. But I want you to see today that God has sent the perfect person. There is no perfect message. This message is not going to convince anybody because Jesus is the answer. This message is not the answer. I'm not the answer, not Pete, not Justin. Jesus is the answer. So we're talking about the true story of Jesus. Second, we're talking about the true story of Jesus. The true story of Jesus. How can we absolutely have certainty that the word of God is true? We oftentimes think, well, you know what? The only way that we can know the word of God is true is by faith. I would put forth that so often that word by faith can be also an excuse for laziness. I, I, I don't want to take the time to really investigate this. I don't want to take the time to work on this. Friends, I believe that there is faith. But I don't think you need as much faith as you think you need because the evidence is overwhelming. It's a logical decision because the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that the word of God is true. And we're gonna walk through just a few things here to help you understand this. So, let me walk through that. We're gonna go pretty quick here, is that all right? We're gonna go through four, four really key reasons why we believe the gospels and the scriptures are absolutely true. First of all, the timing is too early for the gospels to not be true. The timing is too early. Every historian, and there are historians that aren't Christians, but they're historians at the time. There's dozens of these historians that tell us about the life of Jesus. 
And we know when he lived and we know when the gospels were written. We know a range of the gospels. We know that the gospels were written between 25 to 40 or so years after Jesus died. Now, let's say that I have a story for you and I say, okay, in 1907, the tallest building in Portland was the Wells Fargo building. And in 1907, there was a man who walked to the very top of, the, uh, of this big, tall building, this, you know, the first really, I mean, like a skyscraper back, back then. He jumped off the top of the building. He didn't fall down. He floated around downtown Portland and then came back and rested on the top of the building. You'd say, that's crazy. Can, can you prove that's not true? Well, there's nobody that was alive 116 years ago. I mean, there weren't cameras downtown trying to film everything. Uh, no, I can't prove it's not true, but it's, it's, it's nonsense. But, but the story can become legend. The story can just become a legend. And that's what we do when things, you know, so many years have passed and there's no way to disprove something and we share a story, it becomes legend. But what if I said, hey, at a Portland Trailblazers game in uh, December of uh, 1991, and those were good years for the Trailblazers, right? Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, come on. Idiot, I digress. But anyway, let's say I have a story and I say, there, there was a game, there was a home game, and somebody uh, in the very top row of the highest section, uh, all of a sudden just, I mean, like they levitated. And they floated around the scoreboard and came right back to their seat and landed there. You could prove that's not true. How? Because there are people still alive that were at that game. I mean, like you, you, you could advertise in the newspaper. You could say, was anybody there? And they, they you know, would be like, yes, I was there. I mean, that did not happen. There would be cameras there. There would be film crews there. It would not be that hard to disprove that that is absolutely untrue. Now, the early Jews were not a myth-making people. Understand this. Because they wrote so soon after the actual events, they could not make up lies because people would still be alive that were there and saw those things. Luke writes about 5,000 men that were fed, probably, you know, I'm going to go over 15,000 people. Luke talks about the fact that after Jesus was raised from the grave, he appeared to over 500 people. There's stories after stories about Jesus raising people from the dead, and these people would still be alive. You can't make this up this early. If you're going to make up a story about Jesus that's not true, you need to wait hundreds of years. But the fact that the timing was so close to these actual events, the timing is way too soon for these things to absolutely not be true. The Quran says that Jesus did not rise from the dead. The Quran was written 600 years after these events. Some guy named Dan Brown wrote, a book called The Da Vinci Code, which he based upon the Gnostic Gospels, which were written about 500 years after Jesus had died. I mean, people make up these things that are legend and people absorb them as truth. We absolutely have the truth. I think we can know the truth because these things were written way too soon for the Gospels to not be true. Number two, the content is too counterproductive for the Gospels not to be true. I hear all the time, well, you know what? It just, 
it feels like I can't trust the Gospels because the Gospels are written by people that had an agenda. I mean, the whole Bible is written by people that have an agenda for you to become a Christian. And why would I believe in something that they have this strong agenda about? Because they're, they're, gonna, they're just gonna come up with stories. You can believe the Bible's true because they had an agenda. Because if they have an agenda, they're never going to make up the stories that they make up. You would never make these stories up. I was here with the men in January, we talked about Jacob, remember? You would never make up a story, finally somebody trusts God, finally somebody obeys God and does what God wants them to do. And what happens? God physically, literally beats him up and cripples him for life. You're not gonna make that story up. If I'm trying to convince you the word of God is true, I'm not gonna make that up. The birth of Jesus. The people that were the lowest of the low lives in the world were shepherds. They were not shepherds abiding in the fields, but they were shepherds living in the fields. They were lower than the lepers, actually. They would have no strong credibility in any sense, and yet you make up a story in which the shepherds are the first eyewitnesses, you would absolutely never make that up. You would never make up a story in which the mother of Jesus wasn't married. That would be scandalous to the first century Jew. You would absolutely never make that up. Look, look at the death of Jesus. Look at the death of Jesus. The night before the big climax of the story, all four gospel writers tell us that Jesus is saying, God, can, can you get me off the hook here? You wouldn't make that up. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're trying to convince people, if you have an agenda, you're never going to include a story like that. And then my favorite, I just laugh at, John chapter 19, verse 25. John tells us that there were three women at the cross standing there watching Jesus. And what are the three names of the women? Mary, Mary, and Mary. You're gonna give them different names if you're making up the story. Right? You're gonna give them different names. Listen, listen, I could go on for days. This, this, this could be a six-month series. There are so many passages in the scripture that you would never make up if you're trying to convince people. So if you say, I can't believe this because they have an agenda. Friends, because they have the agenda, we can believe the word of God because you would never include these stories. Number three. The content is far too detailed. The writing style is far too detailed for the gospels to not be true. John 8, there's this woman caught in the act of adultery. It says that Jesus bends down to write on the ground. What does he write? We, we have no idea. How does that detail help the story? It doesn't help the story. Why, why is it in there? Because it happened. Jesus in John 21 comes back. There's this great catch of fish. They bring the fish on the shore and they count the fish, 153 fish. What is the nature of those fish? Why, why is that so important? Why do we need to know there's 153 fish? And there have been some ridiculous things written. Well, it's a very important number, 153. Listen, it's not an important number. You know why it's in there? Because they caught 153 fish. 
There's no writing style anywhere that if it's, if it's not true, if it's just a legend, you're not gonna include this. And King Arthur sat down at his table and he was served some grapes. By the way, there were eight grapes. There's, there's nothing like that anywhere in literature because you don't write like that. There's so many details that really do nothing to help stories in scripture. Why are they there? Because they happened. This is not how legends were written. And then fourth, there is so much resurrection evidence. It is overwhelming. I mean, the resurrection evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And see, once again, the historians are in step with the scriptures here. So you can go back and read Josephus and Tactus and Pliny the Younger and on and on. These historians that are writing about Jesus And we can take these things all together and we can ask these questions. And these are important questions because, as we've already said, we live in a time in which truth is rapidly dissolving, in which it seems like everything is just starting to go away. It's becoming personal beliefs. We don't believe in absolute truth anymore. But these things are absolute truth. These things are absolutely true. So let me just say, if you're a skeptic, man, I'm so glad you're here this morning. But don't just spout off a line about, come on, the resurrection, this absolutely cannot be true. There's overwhelming evidence that it's true. Again, very, very quickly. First of all, the cause behind the effect. Tears had come, hopes had died, Jesus seems to be gone. And yet by 64 AD, Nero says that Christianity is the greatest threat to Rome. You're gonna have to come up with a cause behind the effect. What, what would lead to that? What would take this rag bunch, this, you know, this ragtag group of people, and in just a few short years, they become the greatest threat to the Roman Empire? Something had to happen. I think the only logical answer is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. What about the testimony of Christ's disciples? Would you give your life for the truth very few people would because that's, that's such a big decision. Would you give your life for a lie? You think about the disciples. If this weren't true, at some point, somebody would break. At this point, somebody would say, you guys, listen, I've got grandkids. I mean, I know we've had this big kind of story we've kind of made up for all these years, but at some point, somebody would crack. But they don't, why? Because it was absolutely true. And it comes to a point where Peter is crucified upside down. Paul is beheaded. James is run through with a sword. Bartholomew is hacked to death. We could go on and on. There's some point in which you have to say, they absolutely knew that the resurrection was true. They saw the Lord Jesus. Third, we've already talked about this, but the fact that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, and Luke writes this account, and so many of those people are still alive. That is such a powerful, powerful picture. Where's, where's, where's the body? The Romans would love to say, hey, listen, we have the body and it's right here and this whole thing is not true. Let me tell you what the Jews would love to say. You know, here, here, you know what, here, here's the body, this isn't true. The 12 disciples, that would mean that they gave their lives for a lie. There's no body and there would have to be one. Prophecy, it's, and this is another thing we could spend weeks on 
if not in months. There is so much about prophecy. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that speak about Jesus coming. Over 300 that are very specific to what Jesus will come and do. There's no illustration that I can give you to help you understand how crazy that, that, that is because, there's, because it's, it's, it's impossible. There's over 300. There's a man named John Stoner who wrote a book called Science Speaks and he said, let's just take eight. There's over 300. He said, let's just take eight. So he walks through these eight prophecies and the odds of these things actually taking place with one person would be to bury the state of Texas in silver dollars a mile deep and you mark one silver dollar. You have a special mark on one silver dollar and somebody reaches in their hand and pulls out that silver dollar. That's eight. 10 would be, 10 would be because it goes up exponentially. 10 would be if the world was buried in silver dollars. 12 would be if the world was buried in grains of sand a mile deep. And one grain of sand, you pluck that out. There's no illustration for 300. I mean, it's just, it's off the charts, which means it takes more faith to not believe than it does to actually believe. And it's just absolutely, absolutely overwhelming. Next, if you're gonna make up a story, you don't have women be the main witnesses on Easter morning. Because back then, women did not have any voice in courts. They weren't viewed as being credible, and yet the gospel writers make very clear that the first ones there at the tomb, they were women. They were the eyewitnesses. You were never gonna make that up. Friends, I want you to think. Think about these things, because I believe the word of God is actually true. Don't believe the gospel because it's exciting, though it is. Don't believe the gospel because it can give you hope, although I absolutely believe it will. Don't believe the gospel because it can heal your marriage and I believe that it absolutely can. Don't believe the gospel because it's gonna give you a new life in Jesus Christ, although I absolutely believe it will and it can. Believe the gospel because it's true. Believe it because it's true. That's the reason why we believe these things. I hear, I, I hear Christians say things that break my heart. Well, you know, Christianity has helped me so much, I don't even care if it's true. Of course we care if it's true. Well, it's working for me, and so that's what really matters. No, friends, listen to this. It's not relative truth. If it's not true for everyone, it's not true for anyone. If the word of God is not true for everybody, it's not true for anybody. That's our final authority is the word of God. It's not our emotions. It's not the latest book. It's not the rantings of Homer Simpson. It's the fact that the word of God is absolutely true. In the marketplace of ideas, we have the truth. Then finally, the true story of Jesus. You know, your Bible's like mine. If you look in the back, there's, there's maps. Why? Because it's a story. <laughs> it's telling us a story. Luke does not say he's going to compile the teachings of Jesus. 
he says he's going to compile this tr- the, the, the story of Jesus. Listen, the fact that it is a story says this, and this is so important. It is not the teachings of Jesus which save you, so it's not how you live. It is the actions of Jesus which save you, which means that we are saved by grace. Every other religion is the opposite. Every other religion, the teachings are the basis of their religion. So if you look at the Quran and if you look at Confucius and, and if you look at Buddhism and if we could go on and on through every religion, you are saved by obedience in their faith to the teachings of Muhammad and Joseph Smith even and Buddha. We could go on and on. Christianity works exactly the opposite. I love this, I love this quote here from Tim Keller. He says, all of mankind's faith, faith and religion is this. Work hard in this lifetime, and then we develop a record, and then we give that record to God, and he owes us. The gospel says exactly the opposite. God develops the perfect record. He gives, it to, he gives that to us, and then we owe him. You see, if you believe that you are saved through the teachings of Jesus, that is just moralism. That's all that is. It's just moralism. It's just being a really good, good person. And if you think that that's what saves you, that leads to two things. It either leads to self-hatred or to massive amounts of pride. Pete talked about this very thing actually last week in this message. Friends, Jesus is more than your example. He's got to be your savior. He's your substitute. Jesus living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died, being our absolute substitute. It is only through Jesus that we have this hope. And the question is, do you believe this? And I hope that you believe it because it's true. I love C.S. Lewis because he writes great stories that help us understand the story about Jesus. And C.S. Lewis has so many stories in the Chronicles of Narnia that help us think more and more about Jesus and the truth of Jesus. But he has a story that takes place in the silver chair, um, which is about Jill, who has been on the run, and she's been on the run for so long that now she's dying of thirst, and she comes face to face with the lion Aslan, and this conversation takes place. Jill knew straight away that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, she thought. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, Jill could not have moved if she had even tried. She could not take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt like she would go out of her mind being eaten by this lion if she could only get a mouthful of water first. And she sees that there is a rippling brook in front of her. If you are thirsty, you may drink. Those were the first words she had heard. For a second, she stared here and there, not sure who had actually spoken. Then the voice spoke again. If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what had been told her about the fact that animals talk in these other worlds, and she realized it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she saw his lips move this time, and the voice was not like the voice of a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. 
a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different sort of way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, asked Jill. The lion answered this by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well ask the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream before her was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without even knowing it, she had come a few steps closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go now and look for some other stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen a stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water with her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Apart from Jesus, you're dying of thirst. Some of you here today are dying of thirst because of sickness, because of a work situation, because of your marriage, because of some issues with your kids. Some of you are dying of thirst here today. And the only hope is Jesus. And why do we embrace Jesus? Because it's the truth. Because it's absolutely true. Because the word of God, I want you to have confidence that the word of God is absolutely true. And the word of God tells us that Jesus Christ is our only hope. He's the only one on this 4th of July weekend who can truly give us freedom. Only Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that the word of God is true. We thank you that while we have faith, Father, that we can also have confidence. We can know these things. Thank you that Luke wrote so that we could know these things. Thank you that Luke investigated, spoke with eyewitnesses, did all of this research so that we could have great certainty. And it's not just Luke, Father, it's, it's the whole of Scripture. It just makes sense to absolutely believe that this is true. So, Father, for the skeptics here today that have just thought, I just can't embrace this because I, I don't believe the Bible's true. Father, I pray that today you would break through their doubts and their arguments and you would help them to see that truly Jesus is our only hope. He is the only living water that can satisfy our thirst. 
So come meet with us now, do business with us. And for those who have not fully surrendered to you, may this be the day of salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.